So Money, episode 1466, the fabulous, the one and only financial journalist, Diane King-Hall. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So I realized at a certain point, you got to get out of debt. (laughs) Student loans, personal debt, and um, I owed money to the IRS girlfriend. (laughs) That is the last people you want to owe money to. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. It's going to be one of those episodes where I just hang out with a friend for 30 minutes, a good friend from the industry, from the good old days. Diane King-Hall is here. She and I connected a while back, let's just say, when we were both budding financial journalists in New York City. You ever make those friends early on in your career and you just stay friends? Wherever your careers take you, you always have each other's backs. That's Diane for me. Diane was most recently a correspondent and fill and anchor for CBS News. But more importantly, she is a fiscally fabulous financial journalist. She cut her teeth in leading newsrooms around the country. She was embedded on Wall Street, reported from the New York Stock Exchange for many years. And she has specialized in business news for the better part of nearly two decades. She's been at the BBC, New York One, Bloomberg, CNN. She has applied the principles that she has learned in her job to her own life. You just heard an excerpt about getting out of debt. Oh, did she ever? What were the steps that she applied that she learned from the greats that she profiled and interviewed on the job? What are the stories that she's really passionate about right now in the world of personal finance and business news? What is her relationship with fear as it has guided her or not guided her throughout her financial life. And what's next for our friend, Diane? It's so nice to have a podcast where you can talk to friends, but also deliver meaningful conversations to the world. Diane King-Hall, everybody. Diane King-Hall, welcome to So Money, my friend. We go way back, you and I. Yes, indeed, way back. We probably shouldn't tell people how far back. (laughs) (laughs) The year of 2000, and I want to say 10, maybe even sooner. I mean, I certainly knew of you, but I think like we didn't really connect, connect until my younger brother, my only brother. Yes, that's probably when we connected, Todd. He got an internship at New York One, where everyone knows I famously worked uh, in my early 20s. I was a high-strung business producer. Years later, you arrived at New York One yep. and to be the uh, business like Wall Street, New York Stock Exchange reporter. Yep. And Todd, my brother, was studying business in college mm-hmm. and wanted to be in New York. Yes. And I said, well, let me, um, he had no idea what like a journalism job would be like or a yeah. job in like a hot boiling television station. And right. so we just threw him in. We're like, here, do this. Yes, he was a Nepo brother, I suppose. Yeah, but it wasn't like, because Todd was in it, you know, Todd, this is like, I knew of, obviously I knew of you. I knew about you way before then. 
Uh, you have a great reputation, always have. You live up to the hype, like when I officially met you. So ta- like the Tarabis have a special place in my heart. Aww. You know? <laughs> yeah, and you were such a great mentor for him that summer. I was so jealous that he got to spend some some time with you. And I'm like, I haven't met this woman yet, but I, 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 I'm I going to channel her energy through you, Todd, this summer. And so glad we finally met somehow years later. I think we just got dinner. I think we were just like, let's get a bite. Because uh, we have so much in common. Yep. We are so aligned in, in a lot of ways, Diane. I agree. And I'd love to start by just having you talk a little bit about your passion for being a financial journalist. There, you know, there are not a lot of us. No, there's not. I will say when I started out in the industry, initially, I started in news in 2003. I started in the world of news production media back then. Gosh, wow, I'm starting out the gate with dating myself. But so when I was starting out, I had three opportunities in front of me. And those three were Bloomberg, New York One and MSNBC. And these were all internship opportunities. Bloomberg called it summer associate, high uh, flying, fancy way of saying internship. Now, why I picked Bloomberg actually over New York One and MSNBC, which as you know, later I would come back to New York One, was Bloomberg paid. (laughs) Oh, I was going to guess that. I said, was it the money? Yes, it was literally the money. Bloomberg is probably not the most exciting place to work. I know I mean, people are going to be shaking their heads here, but it does pay top dollar in, in the financial news business. They make a lot of money off those terminals. They do. They do off the terminals. But literally it was, you know, and I mean, even an internship is not necessarily like a, it's not a high paying thing, but I was already living in New York. I'm originally from Ohio and I had come to New York for a job, a different job while I was in college. Um, I was briefly working in the nonprofit world, but I quickly realized that that wasn't my calling. I did fine or, you know, well, as can be, but I just my heart wasn't in it. I care about people for the record. <laughs> I'm actually a very caring person I've been told but journalism there's I have a gift for it I've had the gift of gab forever since I was like a kid I've been a great writer since I was a kid so it was a mentor who suggested I go into journalism and then Bloomberg again it was because it paid so it was because of the money initially (laughs) I needed it you know and so I learned, I'm grateful for starting there and learning there because it really set a fantastic foundation for me. I cut my teeth there. Bloomberg trains their journalists well. But I will say initially, I thought to myself, I'll do this for now. And, you know, maybe in the future, I want to be dropped in a war zone and cover, you know, war, famine, you know, whatever. (laughs) But I soon realized that that wasn't my calling in news. Business news was where it was at. I wanted to address the spirit of poverty in the black community in particular. And, you know, often communities of color are behind with regard to knowledge and application of, you know, money and wealth, economic empowerment. Uh, I know I've listened to you before and I think you... I don't know if you love the word economic empowerment, but I'm still a fan of that kind of phrase uh, Mm -hmm. because I think mastering, learning and mastering, not that we ever become, well, maybe some people become masters of money. um, It can change your life. It can change your, the legacy you build within your family. What are some of the stories that you're proudest of, perhaps the ones that do address this economic empowerment that you're talking about? Do you feel like newsrooms have been open to, exploring these sorts of stories, because I think 
it wasn't until um, 2020 2020, that we were like, oh, we should talk about the wealth gaps. I agree. I mean, I don't think there was always an interest in in that and addressing that. I think the Fed had done some recent work about that, especially when you looked at even just the concept of employment and the disparities with related to, you know, who's employed and who's not employed with regard to uh, race. I do think the industry as a whole became more interested in addressing that subject, the, you know, inequality and wealth gap since 2020, since uh, George Floyd. I think one piece that I got to do at CBS was, you know, it may not sound scintillating, but it was a subject, it's called Black Women on Boards. It was a woman I knew who I had interviewed years ago, who was now involved in this effort to increase the, you know, diversity of boards and boardrooms, corporate boardrooms. Uh, And it was nice to be able to shine a light on a subject like that. Uh, CBS, I pitched it. She came to me and talked about this organization that she was involved with trying to do that because, you know, a lot of these places, it can start from the top down, you know, boardrooms influence executives, executives kind of lay the groundwork for what their company could and should look like, you know, and just be more representative of the changing landscape of America, because we know by a certain year that diversity is going to, I mean, just the the makeup of America is going to look different. Like maybe mm-hmm. uh, more like Nick Cannon's family. I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey. But it's going to be a mix in America. I mean, it's already, we're considered the melting pot. But, you know, there are statistics that show by 2050, which clearly now is actually not that far. I mean, you know, it's less than 30 years away mm-hmm. <laughs> that the face of America is going to look different. And so companies should reflect that. Boardrooms should reflect that. So that was like a subject that I got to cover at CBS. And I think, you know, there's just more ground to be covered. Another piece I like, there was a journalist, Julian Glover, who did this piece about like the disparities in appraisals and home appraisals uh, and, you know, in the real estate market. And so it's, you know, I'm glad this stuff is getting coverage because you think we're so far removed from the concept of red line in real estate. And, you know, some of these issues still exist today. Mm -hmm. I remember that devastating study. And then there was a New York Times piece Mm -hmm. about a family that they um, got their home appraised. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. Whatever the number came back. And then they were like, this feels low. So then they did it again with a different appraiser took out, sort of whitewashed the house, got yep. rid of all of their like- Their pictures that showed any black family. Pictures, yep. cultural references, books that may have hinted at like who lives here. Exactly. And the, the appraisal went up oh. higher. Yep. Yeah. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. Um, how has your job informed your personal life? I mean, we all take away business lessons or money lessons from all the people you've interviewed or from just all the work life experiences that you've had, what has been the most impactful lesson that you have taken from the field and applied it to your own personal life? So it's interesting. I will say, you know, because often I'm in the day to day, the covering the earnings, the economic data, the breaking news of the day. But it's really the people in in, in, uh, personal finance who have influenced my journey the most. And even talking about this subject, it's like, 
you know, for a while early on in my career in the industry, I was like a doctor not taking his own medicine, not not calling myself any kind of doctor or whatever, but learning these le- lessons and becoming a library. You don't want to just be a library of this information. So I realized at a certain point, you got to get out of debt. <laughs> Student loans, personal debt. And um, I owed money to the IRS girlfriend. <laughs> that is the last people you want to owe money to. So one of the things I learned was both the getting out of debt and staying out because there are things that can happen in your life that send you back there and you never thought you would be back there again. Uh, so, and I know Susie Orman has talked about this before, like, you know, having to get out of debt twice, you know? So the objective is once you're out to stay out at the same time to anyone listening, I'm not, uh, among the people who would shame life quakes can happen. And sometimes there are things that are far past your ability to pay for, even if you have that emergency fund set aside, Let's say if it's three to six months, that can go by quickly when there's death in the family, divorce, you know, things like that can really just, you know, a business situation gone wrong can really shake up your whole foundation, you know, but it always goes to show that going back to like your principles can help you rebuild. And if you've done it before, you can do it again. You know, so I would say, you know, getting out of debt, it was, oh, shoot, my uh, Siri. (laughs) Siri doesn't understand. Siri, you're not in this conversation today. (laughs) (laughs) But I would say, so I am a big fan of Susie Orman. I know some people, you know, uh, in the personal finance, don't love her methods and feel like she's old school, but I would say her methods helped me get out of debt. I, you know, I'm a big fan of either because I know there's also the like debt snowball method preached by Dave Ramsey and his crew. And I, I know that works for some people. I've tried that method. I prefer personally the Susie Orman attacking the high interest because for me that felt more burdensome. And actually, initially, the most I owed was to the IRS. And I wanted to get out of that first. It pays to negotiate with your creditors. I think being proactive is better than being reactive because you'd be surprised at, you know, what they're willing to do or to be flexible because probably to them, some money is better than no money. And then also I sought out to just pay off because my credit score back then was shot. It was terrible. Uh, I don't remember what the exact number was, but I remember it was terrible because I'd had credit cards that went to collections. But I even, because I took a scripture to heart that said, basically, owe nothing to no man, except love, basically. So mm-hmm. I went back to even dig up those that had gone to like collections to pay those off. I was like, I'm paying off everything. There was literally even a, a friend who had loaned me money. That was the only person, like person out of these companies who she wouldn't let me pay her back. <laughs> Oh, wow. So, yeah, that was very nice of her. Yeah. So that was the the application of what I was learning from, mm-hmm. you know, being in the industry. It's hard to live in New York. Yes. On a journalist salary. Can we talk mm-hmm. about that for a second? I know because <laughs> while our experiences were decades ago in the beginning, getting mm-hmm. our start in New York as media folks. I mean, I had side hustles. I yep. I had debt. Yep, um, I did that. I, I don't know what else to tell people when they want to move to New York and make it quote unquote work. I'm like, you need more than one job unless you work in like an investment banking. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> otherwise you're making probably a 45K starting salary. That's half of your rent. 
Yeah, right. There, you, probably. You, you do. And when I got serious about debt, it wasn't just about like budgeting. You have to play what I call offense and defense. You know, the offense is finding more streams of income, whether that's selling your closet on Poshmark, eBay. You know, I've heard now that people can do this. Like if you have the space, this is probably not someone in New York City, but rent out a room on, uh, I think it's called furnished finder to like a visiting nurse, travel nurse, somebody working in healthcare or something like that. You can even take a, like a, what do they call those gigs now? Like the gig economy kind of jobs um, where you're doing either DoorDash, Instacart or Uber or something like that, you know, on the side. I mean, it, it to your point, it's hard because I remember once I had an Uber driver who I asked him, it's just, I have a natural curiosity and I don't talk to people. Gift of gab. <laughs> yes. And so I asked him basically what his day job was. He was a manager at a bank. Um, yes. And so to me that said, I mean, I think it was about more, I don't know that it was like a debt situation. I think he was trying to like, you know, build for his family. And I don't know if his wife worked or anything like that. I didn't get into all that, but I was surprised that he was taking on a side job, you know? The the coolest probably Lyft story or Uber story I have mm-hmm. with, I've ever struck up a conversation with my driver is, well, a couple, like one, it was a woman, which I don't always get, you know, it's very rare that you get a female mm-hmm. driver. Yep. She was working in accounting, um, mm-hmm. but working to get uh, another degree so that she could make more money and using Uber as a way to support herself right. through her graduate program. Right. Um, you know, another time there was a dad who, I think he was like full-time driving Uber, but he was like, my, I'm retiring on my son because he just got into Ohio to play mm-hmm. football. And oh, wow. I have been investing every single penny into his training, all of his childhood. And now mm-hmm. he better like get a deal because <laughs> I'm only going to ride Uber for another like four years. I've told him already <laughs> he needs to get into the NFL. I felt like I was in the presence of like a future celebrity. It's possible. It's possible. (laughs) It's definitely possible. But yeah, like to your point, I think it can be utilized not just to, you know, a side hustle like that can be utilized not just to pay down debt, but it can be utilized to push forward your dreams. So because school is expensive, you know. We both worked in the Wall Street area. We both have reported from the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Do you ever, do you know, and they're still there, they're like kind of uh, diagonally across from the New York Stock Exchange entrance. It's a coffee cart. It's called Good Morning America. It's run by brothers who are immigrants from Afghanistan. Yes. And I've written about them. I used to get coffee for them every morning. Yes. Their story gives me goosebumps because they would have lines wrapped around the block and I asked them, you know, what's the, what's the end goal here? And first of all, they said they're supporting nine family members. I didn't realize it was that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Their sister, their mother, their cousins, mm-hmm. all of them, you know, they came first and then they brought everybody else over. And so nine of them under one roof, mm-hmm. one of the brothers after like noon, because who gets coffee and a bagel? Like They leave the at that time. Yeah. They like- and they go to another job. I didn't know that part. So you did a better job asking questions with them. Yeah, I know. He's like, I, well, I did a whole story on them. I was like, okay. tell me everything. And one brother, he's like, well, I'm actually trying to get my fitness license and I want to be a personal trainer. And so he would he would go to the gym right across the street after that shift and, and, and work out there. But the goal was to raise a million dollars so they could buy a Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, man, I love that. So the last time I was at the exchange was... Last year, 
I'm, I say that with a, a little tongue in cheek because we're early in 2023 as we're chatting right now. Uh, and so I last saw them in 2022. Uh, I'm not sure they may, you know, but yes, of course I know them. Uh, everybody knew them, you know, yeah. they had the, the most famous people on Wall Street. Yes. And I, I mean, everybody went there to get there because they're the first ones out with the coffee, you know, and I used to get there at what I call, I borrowed this phrase from a friend in the industry, stupid o'clock in the morning. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think they wake up at like two in the morning or something. Yeah. They're definitely, they, they start, they get there around two ish. They start serving coffee around three, but sometimes they'll serve it a little earlier than that if they're, you know, you're one of their regulars. Because there's traders there that are working on China hours. That's what they tell me. They they tell me there's like Asian hours. So that means they've got customers as early as three o'clock in the morning. What's it like working on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? Not something that anyone, everyone has done, but I think there's a lot of curiosity Maybe not so much now than maybe 20 years ago. It was a little bit more exciting, more, more. Even 10 years ago or even five years ago, it was exciting. I mean, it, you know, even up, uh, up until pre-pandemic, I still think it was pretty exciting. And I am a big fan of the floor. I developed friends there. You know, I keep in touch with folks there. Some of the guys from the floor will, you know, reach out to me either on social or text and, you know, you check in with each other because you develop relationships so much that you know things about each other's families. A lot of times I'll consider them my colleagues because so often in my career, I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange versus newsrooms. You know, I love a newsroom. I love the hustle and bustle of a newsroom, but I love also love the hustle and bustle of the floor when it was hustle and bustle. Now it's way quieter than it used to be. It's gone through a lot of cosmetic changes. It's beautiful. They've done, you know, a lot of things where it just looks more modern while retaining just some of the, you know, while retaining architecture of old there. The thing I do miss is that just energy on the floor. I know it's quieter nowadays down there. The pandemic just changed a lot of industries, you know, and Mm -hmm. that definitely affected the NYSE as well. Mm -hmm. I call it the exchange, but I know there's more than one exchange. <laughs> you know, it has a special place in my heart. You know, I have mm-hmm. friends there on the floor and friends there who, you know, work for the exchange itself. Do you have a story about being down there that um, relates to the, being a minority? You know, whether it was your gender or your or the color of your skin. I mean, because most of the people mm-hmm. working on the training floor, not the journalists. No, yes, yes. The, finance folks, they're white men, yep. older white men. Yep. How is that for you? Yeah. I'll say in general for me, so I've obviously I've noticed that they have been welcoming to me, which I know that, you know, no, notoriously in the past, they weren't always, they definitely weren't always welcoming to journalists, first of all. Then they weren't even welcoming to females and female journalists once upon a time. For me, my time down there was, I was welcome, um, but it would be remiss of me not to comment on noticing that there weren't very many people of color down there. And that is something that could change, you know, definitely. I mean, of course, you knew all the, the, you know, you knew the folks of color down there because there weren't that many, you know, so you check in with them, obviously. You know, there's also that nod that happens when you see another one in the professional workspace. It's like, you know, that nod of I see you, that affirmation, I see you. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, because there are some things that you know that they struggle with or you struggle with. For me, it's not necessarily going to be in your face because they're not technically my colleagues, but, you know, my experience may have been different if I was a, you know, a black female trader on the floor. There was a woman who, you know, was there. I think by the, I don't want to speak for her, but I wonder if by the end of her time there, if it was difficult down there. And I read what they had initially paid her And I don't think that would have been the case if she were a white man, you know, it would have been unacceptable. What do you think about pay transparency? I'm interviewing uh, this woman, Hannah, who started, I think it's called Transparency Street. Transparent Street. Street, And it has like a Sesame Street sign, Mm -hmm. but it's Transparent Street. And it's this woman, Hannah, who just uh, started Salary Transparent Street, Salary mm-hmm. Transparent Street. She's going to be on the show. Hannah, she's the founder of that. She just goes on the street and asks people, what do you make? I think I must have seen her. There's also a guy who does that, too. And it's interesting. Yeah. I am fascinated by that, that topic. I don't know if all the people are always telling the truth when they answer, because some people, mm-hmm. you know, there, there seems to be some tells where they go, uh, uh, and a lot of people to me like to say <laughs> they make six figures. And I'm like, not everybody is making that, you know, just, we know by the data. Well, she's gotten better at asking now. Cause she'll be like, I'll be like, I make, um, two twenty K. And she's like, is that including the anticipated raise and your bonus and your stock options? He's like, um, <laughs> I'll have to get back to you. <laughs> He's like and including the 401k match, all of it, you know, which is fine. But like, let's yes. not, let's let's list it out. Yes, exactly. I mean, I like I like the subject. I like what's happening in uh, cer- certain states with regard to pay transparency and having to share that information. Like you know, in New York now, there there has to be a pay range posted when a job is posted. I like that because it helps you kind of understand what the market uh, looks like for your job, your career, a position that you're seeking. At the same time, I think there may be some challenges that come with that. You know, I know there was the whole subject of quiet quitting last year. And I know there's there's this new trend they're calling quiet hiring, which, you know, they've taken it to mean like internally, you know, moving somebody to do, you know, like another job. But I wonder if the pay transparency could have an unexpected consequence of a different kind of quiet hiring, you know, Mm. meaning a job not posted, so no information. And then, you know, someone has the position. So that makes it challenging, which I, you know, I know that that can happen, especially in our industry, that a lot of times jobs aren't posted and, you know, you find out through word of mouth that something's happening. Like I know that even happens in the housing market, uh, a house going for sale that never hits the market, but, you know, someone tells someone it's like, okay, that's going down. So I wonder with regard to pay transparency, I am all for it. I like the information getting out there, but I wonder if there will also be some unintended consequences. Yeah. I don't know what to call it consequences <laughs> effects. Well, I, I would call it a consequence. I okay. might even call it a backlash. Mm. I think that you have to be really careful about what you share. Mm-hmm. And I'm all for pay transparency, but mm-hmm. not always attaching yourself to that number and saying, sure, this is what I make world. Yep. I've shared, 
how much I make or what projects I've, what I've earned mm-hmm. in certain projects when, for example, another, uh, another person in our field comes mm-hmm. to me respectfully and says, right. I have a deal that came across my desk. I have no idea how to negotiate it. I will help right. that person. Right. But am I going to go on Instagram and tell you how much I break down my income from January for yeah. everyone to see? Why? What? I mean, maybe some people you could be that, inviting issues then, especially yeah, on like, social media, because people like could come to your house. Go ahead. Some people aren't don't want you to win. Yeah. Some people don't want you to win. And some people who don't want you to win are the gatekeepers. They are the stakeholders. I have a That's fair. too many stories of you know, people who were uh, negotiating a deal with me who knew what I made, let's say at the first, the first deal mm-hmm. and then come for the second deal, they got the sort of renegotiation, mm-hmm. you know, renewal. They're like, does, don't you already make enough? Cause they know how much I made. And it's like, this they isn't about it. what you think I deserve. Right. This is about what this job commands and right. the results that I'm going to give you. The value that you're going to bring to the yeah. team. So I think it's important to be transparent, but only be transparent in front of the audience that's really going to be receptive to that and understand this is in the context of something maybe bigger. And, you know, we tend to have this um, ideology in our culture, which is that what you make is what you're worth. Yes. And that's a good point to your point. It can change because even if you, you know, you had some, you know, great income one year, the next year it could be nothing, honestly, you know, hopefully you save some money during your great year because, you know, you want to, um, save during your years of like, you know, your years of harvest for the years of famine, you know? So, you know, so. And so without that context, people mm -hmm. can make their assumptions and Um, I, maybe I sound like I care too much about what people think, but no, no you don't I, at all. I am, I am sensitive to this because I have seen it not work out always great. I mean, I go, I have a comeback for those naysayers. Let me tell you, like, I, I'm not shy to, you know, defend myself, but right. or explain myself, but it's like, sometimes you just don't want, the, you don't want to be bothered. I understand. I absolutely understand. Yes. <laughs> Um, this is all coming out in my book, Healthy State of Panic, <laughs> October 2023, y'all. And the book is about how you can use fear as your superpower. So I want to ask you, Diane, I want to get in the habit of asking mm. guests this question as we mm. head into that launch, because um, I think it's fun. What is an example of how you have held space for fear in your life? where you either experience the fear of failure, the fear of rejection, any any sort of big fear, but you listened to it. You didn't try to run it over. You didn't run away from it. It helped you actually maybe learn something important about yourself and then make a, a, a healthy decision. So I will say for me, fear is not the biggest motivator. For me, fear can have the effect of paralysis where I don't move forward yeah. or, you know, I'm overanalyzing something and just, I just can't move. I try not to, honestly, for me, I try not to give too much space for fear because it can, you know, like it can just overtake me personally. And I've been guilty of putting my head in the sand. And that's, for instance, what led to just, you know, having debt, like, okay, I can't see it. So, you know, because I'm, I'm afraid of it. So it's more for me about facing your fears. And when I get too afraid, I do reflect on, I try to 
think about, not just think about it, I'll say it out loud to myself. There's a scripture, uh, it's in 2 Timothy uh, 1, 7, where it says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power of love and of sound mind. And especially that sound mind and power part, you know, to just help empower me to get over that moment, whatever that thing that's causing me fear, that's holding me back. And I do hear, you know, there are a lot of people, whether it's motivational speakers or preacher has even said this before, that do it afraid thing. So I try to approach things. I'm not as good as do it afraid. Mm-hmm. in terms of dealing with addressing fear, but I try not to let the spirit of fear live in me because I've done that before and I've let it overtake me and been so afraid that that I'll have insomnia, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, I can't live with that too long, you know, mm-hmm. because it just, it's it's not a good space for me, you know? Other people mm-hmm. maybe can handle that and embrace it, but I'm trying to push it out personally. I get that. I totally get that. I'm going to send you my book and personally sign it because I want you to have a better relationship with fear. I think you can get there. I think, you know, for me, it was like, like you, like fear is not just this thing that shows up once in a while, especially these, it's like this underlying hum in the background. And I think that, you know, fear is instinctive. It's been around it's yep. part of human nature. It's evolutionary. It, it, it began as this emotion to really protect us from danger. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and yep. as we've socialized and we've like built communities and we've evolved, the fear doesn't go away, but like how we should use it, I think should, it shouldn't be like this tool to just see, you experience it and then you react. Yeah. I think you know, giving yourself the chance to understand why it show why it's showing up. Because if you're afraid about something, especially in the context of work or your money or relationship mm-hmm. or parenting, maybe it's because it, you're trying to protect something you really value. Mm-hmm. And so no, you make you know, a good point. You know, and I think we, we you are doing that. You are going through those emotions, but maybe you're you're. I just want everyone to be like giving fear a little bit more credit. You know, like it got you. Even if for you, fear is like, I don't like it. So I do these other things to get myself more mentally conditioned, more mentally strong. Well, maybe that's what fear wanted you to do. You make a good point about it doesn't have to be the enemy all the time because it is an instinctive thing. And especially it can be a protective measure, like protecting you from disaster or a bad person, you know? So that is a good point that I didn't think about as I think about how I've dealt with it in my life. But yeah, you know, like, you know, a person, you have an instinct about a person who, you know, maybe intends you harm. I know it's not necessarily a money related thing, but, um, but yeah, so I see your point. I do hear your point. Last but not least, what's next for you? Oh, good question. Hard question. (laughs) I am currently in the process of figuring that out. You know, so I am, I've been taking the traditional route of uh, interviewing and meeting with different networks um, and, you know, uh, having meetings about different on-air opportunities. But I also have been giving some thought to, because uh, one of my sisters and another sister has recently started encouraging this as well, and a friend, about kind of putting my own shingle out 
clout, if you will, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and doing something under my own brand, you know, under Diane King Hall. Um, One uh, friend in the industry even gave me a name years ago. Of like a show idea. I've been wanting to do a show for a while, you know, um, it would be like a personal finance show. Uh, and the name he gave me was Your Call with D.K. Hall. So maybe you'll see something oh, like that. We'll see. Breaking I, news. I love it. Okay. Let this show be the moment you manifested it out loud. Oh, man. I love You've that. Got tens of thousands of listeners here cheering you on. Thank you. I, I definitely want to see that happen. Thank and you. Please- Thank Listeners you. know it was it was just a few weeks ago that I bawled on on this podcast because someone left this really incredible review. Oh. Said like, you know, I've changed your life, and, and I don't say that lightly. Like, I can't believe it. And, I love that. But not this isn't about me. This is about why you need to do yep. this, Diane. That's you why need- I want to do. I want to help people. You, you right. are helping people. You can help more people, and and it's just like you don't have to do all the things. Just mm-hmm. start. Make this the year about doing one thing mm. that is just yours, that no one can take mm. from you. That as you go on these interviews and some will pan out and some jobs won't. And mm-hmm. Even if you have a job that kicks you for another 10 years, um, you know, in one place, like to just always have your own carved out space in your professional life. Right. It's not only great security, but I think it, um, it's wisdom. it keeps, it fuels you. Yeah. It informs yeah. the other work that you're doing. Right. Um, it becomes this flywheel of content and inspiration. And then other things naturally come out of that. Or if you pour that into your full-time job, I mean, it's, I, you just got to find the thing that will entertain you enough, really, yeah. because you want it to be fun. Um, right. You want it to be something that you can go back to and be consistent with. So I'm with all your sisters Thank and all you. your friends. That. I appreciate that. I didn't know if I would talk about it today with us talking, but it just, I, you know, I decided to be honest, transparent and put my dream out there. Well, virtual hug. Thank you. Virtual hug back at you. Hey, call me if you have any I questions. You I will. Any ideas. You know I will. <laughs> you know I will. Diane King Hall, thanks so much for hopping on and making my day. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Diane for joining us. Stay tuned for Friday's episode of Ask Farnoosh. It's not too late to send me your questions. You can email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com or just send me a direct message on Instagram at farnoosh tarabi. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. And I hope your day is so money. So money.